We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why when it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. We are breaking down all aspects of Yankee baseball. This is the Bronx Pinstripe Show with your hosts, Andrew Rotondi and Scott Reinen. Let's go. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Bronx Pinstripe Show, episode 286. Thanksgiving weekend's almost over. You uh, you feeling the effects, Scott? I am. In what way? You're, you're a little uh, I'm little tired. Large. I'm lethargic. Yeah. I have been eating and drinking my face off for... It's been a week straight, actually, because the, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, we had Leanne's cousin's wedding. So I just figured, being the adult that I am, well, let me let me eat my face off and drink my face off then and let me just ride it through the week. Yeah, you got I'm not going to stop Monday through Wednesday. Makes sense. I'm just going full in for the entire week. holiday week. Let me trash my body for seven straight days. And I'm, I am now feeling the effects. So this is the first time that I've actually hosted. I mean, last year we had uh, like a, a whole Thanksgiving dinner, but it was just a, my wife and uh, my little guy and, and me. It was, it was very small, but for some reason I decided to make it a full meal. And, but this year we made a ridiculous amount of food, had like 13, 14 people over. And now I have a ton of leftovers because not many people took them on the way out, even though I was trying to give them away. And so I've been having Thanksgiving dinner every day since for, for <laughs> practically every meal. You have the Thanksgiving sandwich? Yeah, the sandwich. We got the, the rye bread for the sandwiches. Like that was the specific reason for that afterwards. Um, and then we have everything, like everything you could possibly think of. We have a ton of it left over. So, and I'm a dark meat guy. Like when I want my, when I eat the turkey alone, I want the dark meat. If I'm making a sandwich, I'm a white meat guy. But if, yeah, if I'm the, just the dark white meat, meat, if I'm just the, the turkey, I'm, I'm, I'm dark meat. So what do you put on the sandwich? Because this is, this is, some people have very strong opinions about, about what they put on a Thanksgiving sandwich. Yeah. Um, I put some, I put turkey, I put some of the, uh, the stuffing, I don't go crazy on it though. I don't put like everything on it. I, I, I mainly use it for the turkey sandwich, but I will put some of the um, some of the stuffing. And then I have this this dish that I make. And it actually started with my mom, but they're like uh, little pearl onions and like a cheese sauce. It's really good. And I will put some of those on there too. Oh, I see. Okay, so that acts as like the cheese. Yeah, yeah. Because some people put gravy on it, but I like to go cranberry the cranberry sauce with a little bit of mayo. Yeah, I don't do any mayo. I don't do. I, maybe I'll put a little mustard on, but that's. I don't. Uh, I certainly don't do cranberry sauce. I'm, I'm an anti cranberry sauce guy. 
Can't stand Why it. Why is that? It's just, See, it's I told disgusting. you people have very strong opinions on it. But that's, I mean, that's where Thanksgiving dinner period, like that does, it doesn't touch my plate. My, my plate is a sacred area of space and there's, mm-hmm. and it's, the real estate is expensive. You know, like you, you need to, you need to earn your way onto there. And there's a lot of things that have earned their way onto my plate. Cranberry sauce, just one, it ruins other things if it bleeds into it. And two, it just doesn't deserve to be there. Like for what reason? I, I don't know if you do like the congealed or if you do more of like a, uh, if someone actually goes a little bit more fancy and makes like an actual whatever use real cranberry, but to me, it's I like, just I like it all. It's uh, it's like a dessert almost, and there's a time and a place for that, and that's not in the middle of dinner. See, I find that a lot of times I end up putting so much food on my plate that it all becomes one big pile. Yes, I do and the same. Nothing, nothing is separate from one another. So at any given bite i'm getting mashed potatoes i'm getting stuffing i'm getting turkey i'm getting cranberry i'm getting gravy right. squash like it's all going in the gullet at once and then 10 minutes after dinner usually in the fourth quarter of the dallas game i'm asleep on the couch yeah i mean that is that is the exact reason why i don't put cranberry on my plate because the fork does mow through multiple things at one time and i don't <laughs> want cranberry on that fork <laughs> i don't want cranberry ruining my mashed potatoes because that's disgusting to me so people listening right now are like, are these guys going to do an entire hour podcast on Thanksgiving dinner? Hey, it's significant. This is a significant time. We have to know. Uh, you can judge a person very, very much so by knowing what they do on Thanksgiving or how they eat and what they do. So, you know, something that I, I don't, I've never really heard many people do, but my family, uh, we didn't do it this year. And I don't know why, but we didn't. But when I grew up, we would always have, and this was my great aunt's, I think it started with her, but we would always have sherbet with the dinner. It was always like a, a little um, side dish of sherbet, like a scoop of sherbet, and, and it was just there. It wasn't like before dinner, it was with the dinner, and mm. that was like our weird little thing. That's a palate cleansing thing. It must be. But yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Or, it's always orange sherbet. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, but we Is did, your grandmother Italian? She is not Italian, no. She's... Mm. Um, I don't know what she is. She's not. She's 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 pretty. She's she's, she's just my grandmother, pretty, man. Yeah, stop judging my grandmother. No, I, I think they're uh, on that side of the family. Their roots go to to are English, most of it, and Irish and English. So, so we released episode, the episode last week. Uh, it was the we talked about Anduhar. We talked. We did the draft with Joe and Brad. People loved that. They had a lot of fun telling us that how dumb we are and how we shouldn't have drafted those players. Right. Most of the people who talked about that didn't actually listen to the episode, so they thought that you had Alfonso Soriano in your top ten right. of all time Yankees, yeah. and I had. Uh, you know, whoever, uh, uh, Tino, Willie Randolph, Tino Martinez in my top 10 of all time Yankees. And they thought we were morons, right? which, uh, just listen to the show and you'll understand that we had to build a team and it was a, it was, it was a, a draft snake draft. It was a draft. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but regardless, it was a fun segment. If you guys did not listen to it, go check it out. It's the second half of last week's episode, but in classic Yankees fashion, the afternoon, that we release an episode. We released Monday morning, Monday afternoon. We get the James Paxton news. Yeah, it's it's big news. And unfortunately, this week, it was uh, being a holiday week. You and I couldn't really coordinate to get on immediately. So we figured we'd just do it on this episode. But it's, uh, it's a big deal. Obviously, they do it right after uh, we release an episode, which is, is absolutely classic because it happens all, every time. Um, but they got one of, the, one of the big moves that they needed to do. They needed to solidify this pitching. Obviously, it's been talked about that Brian Cashman knows everybody knows that the pitching is the uh, the area of focus for this team and they went out and they made a big move and they and they dealt their probably their um, their most prized asset for a, well he was their number one prospect yeah I think it's just a chef I think it's debatable if he's their most prized asset though he was their number one prospect on the book but um, some would say Florial's probably could could possibly get more but who knows uh, but but it was a big deal they traded a big piece to go and get um, a guy that they think will help them right now. And uh, I, I personally really like the move. I, I'm, I'm happy with what it is. I know we talked about Paxton before, the big concern being the the innings. Um, but when you dive into him a little bit more, and, and we did this without getting without taking on the Robinson Cano contract, by the way. That's how, mm-hmm. this, that's how we started. Well, we, we said, when we were talking about that a couple of weeks ago, we said the only way you would take on the Cano contract is if it means you don't have to give up your top-end prospect for Paxton. Right. And that was not going to happen because apparently the Yankees were talking with the Mariners for a month, and the only way it was going to get done is if Justice Sheffield was in the deal. Yeah. And, you know, you got you to gotta make moves to, to get guys back. you gotta, you got to give up 
significant pieces to get significant pieces back. Obviously, James Paxton is a guy who is doing it now. I mean, you're looking at Justice Sheffield, who's a lefty, um, lefty starter. James Paxton, lefty starter. One of them has success in the big leagues, and the other one doesn't. And you know, I've been sit- talking about this for for uh, you know since the uh, the end of the season. Like, I think this year in this off season, and, and I think he's proving now that he's doing this. Cashman realizes what this team is. He knows that it's ready to win right now offensively. They have the pieces in place. They need to solidify that pitching to make them a true, um, you know, top contender. And if they do that, they're ready to win right now. So it's no more, we're not building any longer as far as like waiting on prospects. I just don't think they're in that position any longer. They're ready to go right now. And that's, that's really what this move justifies, I think. Absolutely. That's certainly part of it. Paxton's 30 years old, but he has two more years of of arbitration before he's a free agent in 2021. I think, though, that if Sheffield made more progress last year and and they were more confident in Sheffield, they wouldn't have traded him. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I I mean, this is something that that you and I have been talking about since, uh, you know, probably middle of the season. Like, I. I really didn't think they were as high on Justice Sheffield as a lot of as a lot of uh, people thought they were. Uh, people were excited because he was a lefty pitcher coming up through the, in the bigs um, and potentially coming up um, to to save the Yankees and you know to add a, another ace. I just didn't I didn't see that in this kid. And the fact that they uh, they waited so long to bring him up, like they didn't see him as an immediate piece to bring up for September call ups to help the team at that point. They did they they put him in the bullpen in AAA for a little bit to get more time. He was in AAA throughout their entire playoffs in the bullpen as well. And they're trying to you know whether it was take another look at him and in, in the uh, bullpen to see if he could clean up some of the things that they were worried about. But I think it ultimately came down to the uh, the control. I, I I don't think that they were in love with him because of the control issues. Right. I read a scouting report um, last week on Sheffield that said Justice Sheffield, the Yankees starting pitching prospect that attacks hitters like it's the eighth inning. And that's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because he's walking a lot of guys. He's striking out a lot of guys. It is not a recipe for a deep starting pitcher. Obviously, that can change. The Yankees were hoping it changed. It didn't really change this year. The Mariners, though, on the other hand, they're saying, well, the kid has the talent and we're going to suck next year. We're tearing it down. Let's give him let's give him the chance. He's probably going to start the year in the Mariners rotation and he's going to have the opportunity to work out all of those kinks that the Yankees were not going to let him do at the major league level because they couldn't afford to have him do that at the major league level. That's the thing. After what happened last year with Sonny Gray and them striking out on that and completely whiffing, they couldn't they couldn't really take that opportunity, that chance again. And that's why I thought they would go out and get more than you know, just a one, you know, maybe, maybe even more than two starters because, and, and that, that's the other reason I didn't think they were going to sign CC honestly, because I, you know, they're, they're walking in with another question mark now. And I just didn't think they could afford to do that. I mean, I, obviously they're not done though. They're not done. Oh, for sure. Not, but you know, there's still a roster spot going to CC right now. So that's another conversation, but the, the fact that they went out and got James Paxton to, um, to, you know, really add another top tier talent to this rotation. And from what we hear, um, I know the big concern, again, we talked about this, the uh, the innings, and, and the innings have direct correlation with the injuries, but from what they understand, they think they're, he's on the uh, on the uptrend with the injuries and not, not going to let them really be a part of a nagging problem. And they were kind of fluky injuries, if you look at them. Right. There's nothing structurally wrong with his shoulder or his elbow, which would absolutely throw a red, red flag for Cashman. Um, so he said he looked at all of the reports and didn't see anything that would scare them for the long term. When you look at his injury list, April of 2014, strained lat muscle. May 2015, strained tendon in his middle finger of his pitching hand. August 2016, bruised left forearm because he was hit with a comebacker. May 2017, left forearm strain. August 2017, strained left pectoral muscle. So that all added up to a lot of missed time. He's never pitched a full season. But it's not like he had to sit out with a UCL uh, injury or something that you might say, well, this guy's going to need Tommy John surgery, or I just don't see him ever going past the 160 inning limit because his arm's not going to hold up. All this is kind of weird shit that happened. Well, now the injuries we've in 2017, also learned, though, look a little, they, they look like they're mechanics related, though. That's the only concern I would have when I'm looking at these. When I see in May in 17 and then uh, August of 17, the May was a, a left forearm strain. Well, we know how the forearm a lot of times is a very uh, telling signal for what's happening with the rest of the arm. So a lot of times that forearm can get can get sore or have a strain before the elbow does go. The, a lot of those 
Uh, a lot of those injuries are connected. And then the pectoral muscle, everything on the left arm, again, is, is just leading to me that, that potentially he was, maybe when he came back from the, the forearm strain, he was doing things a little differently mechanically and and felt it more in, in his pectoral. So I, I think there were some mechanical things that happened in 17. And whether it stemmed from forearm strain or, or it was a cause of, of um, you know, the forearm strain, who knows, but... It seems like those are connected to the way that he is throwing. So, but last year looks like he got past that, which is good. Yeah, and he talked about he was he did the radio uh, interviews this week, and he talked about how he has learned how to improve his physical conditioning and what he's putting in his body. Yeah. And he said none of the injuries I've had have returned. It's always something new. Now, again, you can look at that two ways. None of them none of them have returned. Okay, that's a good thing. Nothing is a reoccurring injury. But something else keeps breaking and popping up. Right. And we've learned that sometimes guys, for better or worse, just get injured. You can't even explain it. It just happens. Yeah. The tendon in the middle finger is is weird to me. The the forearm obviously being after he was hit in 2016 with a comebacker. Like that's that is absolutely random. Well, that's a hundred percent flu. Yeah. Um but the, but the 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 big things to me are the forearm strain, if you know, if he's able to get past that and there was no reoccurring injuries or lingering in, lingering issues with the forearm strain and then the strain left pectoral. Um but again that it feels like those were mechanical or potentially like he was talking about uh conditioning issues uh with the with the pectoral. So it, it sounds like there was, you know, maybe he was doing things to compensate um so that that you know he would uh relieve some some stress in areas. But again, a lot of that could be mechanical, a lot of that could be conditioning. So the fact that he feels like he's over it and, and the fact that he feels like he's in good condition, I, I mean, that's it's all positive signs. Right, and the Yankees are banking on the 160 innings in 2018 being a bench, a step, a stepping stone to 180 innings this year. Yeah, yeah, and that's good. You know, if we can get 180 to, I mean, obviously everybody looks at the number of 200 innings. 200 innings get kind that, of, but it, that's, it's an it's old like a white whale. It's a white whale at this point. Like we have to re- set the benchmark at, at what a number one starting pitcher is. I mean, even Luis Severino hasn't hit the 200 inning number. Yeah. Well, I mean, he would have if he didn't go through those middle season struggles. He most likely would have. The the I, the 200, it's still a good benchmark for me. Like, I still want my number one guy, if he's the number one guy, I still want my number one guy getting close to 200 innings. I mean, obviously he's your best pitcher, so you want him throwing more innings. And if, if, it's, the, if it's the top of your rotation – you certainly want more innings out of the top of your rotation than than as you look further down. I think, I think the benchmark still for a number one is pretty damn close to two hundred. When you start filtering down, then then you absolutely change it for what's a quality three, what's a quality four, what's a quality five, because obviously the bullpen is going to be more of a factor in those starts. You don't want the the bullpen to be as much of a factor with your number one guy out there. Right, and and this gets into the conversation at what is an ace, what is a number one pitcher, right? And he has to have all the different characteristics. He has to be able to go out there and dominate at any given day, but he also needs to give you consistent innings. And Paxton has one of them. He can go out there and dominate. We have a number of stats in here, like this one, fielding independent pitching FIP, which we've talked about in the past. The last three seasons with minimum four hundred innings pitched, James Paxton ranks in the top ten of starting pitchers in all of baseball. Up there were guys like Chris Sale and Kershaw and DeGrom. James Paxton is next after those guys. So as far as going out there and dominating a lineup, Paxton can do it. But it's the innings portion. It's the consistency portion. He's not done it yet. And who knows how much the Seattle Mariners were actually holding him back last year as well to to make sure that they didn't get into a point where you know they thought he was going to get injured or, or whatnot. And they very well could have been monitoring that. And I'm sure they were. Um, you know, last year they... They going into the season, they thought they were going to be competing a lot more, and and you know they may have been trying to keep him as healthy as possible for the end of the season. So there's a number of things that go into it as far as considerations, but um, it's it's just I I do see the the quality, and you know when we talked about Paxson a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about his uh, you know the potential of of making a trade for him, that's what you saw. You saw the the quality and the innings were were not where you wanted them to be, but when he was throwing. He's one of the best in the big leagues. And and that's obviously what Cashman saw. And if they do believe that injuries are not going to be a significant problem unless we see something fluky again, then obviously you want one of those guys who's on the mound. And when he is on the mound, he's dominating. So And, and they can build up the time that he's on the mound, hopefully. Uh, you had said when we talked about, I forget if it was on the building the team episode we did or when we were talking about Paxton specifically, you said, 
if Corbin and Paxton, if I'm choosing between the two, I'll take Corbin because he's just going to cost dollars on the free agent market. Right. Whereas Paxton is now costing you just a Sheffield plus two other prospects. Maybe they're lower level prospects, Eric Swanson and Dom Thompson Williams. Don Thompson Williams was a guy that probably most people had never heard of before. Swanson had been heard of. He was going to have to be added to the 40-man roster. He made some progress. He was a pitching prospect for them. Really, the, it was the Justice Sheffield that you gave up. He's the centerpiece of this trade yeah. if you're the Mariners. So that's assets. That's your number one pitching prospect going in a trade. So you, you said you liked it. I did. But well, only so, because so why, also- why, do you, why do you like it? Because I was not very high on Sheffield in the first place. I, I, I didn't Floriel's the guy that I didn't want to give up. That that's to me, that's our number one pro that was our number one prospect that I didn't want to give up. Like he was the guy that I was hoping that they were gonna keep as an untouchable at this point. Um and, and Sheffield, like if you're getting a pitcher for giving up Sheffield, to me that's uh, especially a guy that's controlled for two more years, that has, you know, you know, arguably the the ceiling of Justice Sheffield, like James Paxson, arguably is is the ceiling for a Justice Sheffield. Um, then to me, that's a that's a solid move because you have to win now and, and next year. You have to look at these two years; it's the most important, uh, and and make those make those adjustments. And to me, Sheffield wasn't going to make a big impact next year. I just I didn't see it. Uh, obviously, the Yankees were were down on him, but that control issue was 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 a was a big problem. Um, so I'm I'm okay with that, probably because personally, I just wasn't that high on Sheffield. Uh, so that's why. And and now they can go and get Corbin too. Right. And what does it say? I've heard this being thrown around that. What does it say that Justice Sheffield, a quote, top pitching prospect, has now been traded twice yep. in his young career? How much do you really buy into that, though? Because it's not like he was traded for nothing. He wasn't traded for a bag of balls. He was traded for two Andrew Miller. Pitchers. <laughs> Andrew Miller. Well, okay. But Andrew Miller was the, the Indians were completely in a win now mode when they traded for Andrew Miller and they almost won. They were an inning away from winning the World Series. I think I don't know, do you think they'd still do that trade over again? Probably. And and the Yankees had Justice Sheffield. He helped build rise up that that farm system, right? Sheffield was one of the five guys that have been talked about for the past two and a half years yep. as the next wave of Yankees. Right. Yeah. So I mean, now, it's it's a guy that it's a guy that has been traded twice, like you said. I tweeted that out uh, a couple, couple of days ago. Afterwards, I mean, that's something you have to consider. Two organizations passed have passed now on Sheffield. Now, I could I could argue the the other point and saying, well, the Yankees actually chose Sheffield and they wanted him, and and that was the reason they did it. Or the Mariners, they would only make the deal for Justice Sheffield. So maybe he, you know, you go go flip the coin and look on the other side. Well, he's he's just a very high highly desired guy, and you have to get something you know, extremely valuable at that moment for that guy. But I mean, you look at the Indians deal, they gave up two significant pieces uh, with him. Uh, and then, and this particular deal Sheffield being the, the guy um, you're getting a number one starter. I mean, that's, that's a lot to get for, for a, uh, for a prospect that's, you know, that's had these control issues and then two lower, they're not Swanson's not lower level, but two lower named prospects, if you will, on the, uh, on the death chart. So, I mean, he did get a significant bounty back. So the, obviously the totally, Mariners like him. This is totally about what the Yankees need right now. Yes. And if, if the Yankees were not in a position to win a World Series in 2019, I don't think they'd make this trade. I agree. And, and Sheffield may be good down the road. I just don't think he's ready now. His makeup, to me, the way that he's throwing, uh, it, just, it just wasn't Major League ready. And, and next year, the Yankees are not at a point where they can dick around with their top prospect coming up you know, maybe getting the fifth starter spot, then going back down or, you know, having problems with that. They just they they're not at that at that point in uh, in, in where the, the organization is. They're ready to go. They need more established guys. And so I, that's why I think that, you know, they're ready to go. If they had three more years, like you said, if they weren't ready to compete and they had two more two more years and he was uh, two to three more years for him to develop, then maybe they would have kept him. I think 100 percent they would have kept him. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's where the Mariners are. And uh, there's rumors that the Yankees were pushing Sheffield for for Goldschmidt for for uh, before trading him for Paxton. That rumor came out recently. Um, so the so then that goes back to the Yankees saying we're not 100 percent sold on Sheffield. He's not going to help us in 2019. Let's see what we can get for him. Yeah. And it was talking to Arizona about Goldschmidt, talking to the Mariners about Paxton, also about Gene Segura. That was also part of the initial talks that never went anywhere. Um, but that went back to the needing infield depth because Didi's out. 
Yeah, and it's interesting the fact that they were talking to or dangling their number one prospect out there for a gold for a guy like Goldschmidt. Um, so it's it's uh, that it's, I not I would have not understood that. Yeah, because Goldschmidt has one more year. Goldschmidt's a phenomenal hitter. Right, he's one of the best offensive first basemen in baseball. But but how does Paul Goldschmidt help you get over any sort of uh, pitching problem? Theoretical hump. Yeah. In in 2019, he doesn't. You know, I think we. Both I understand first base could be a first base could be a problem. Yeah. Uh, next year again with with Voit and and Greg Bird, there's no certainties there. But adding Gold, Goldschmidt and not adding someone like Paxton or more starting pitching pitching is is not solving shit. No, and and you know who knows what what's, what what uh, Cashman's strategy is for all this stuff. It, it could have been just talked about. It could have been. Um, you know, thrown out there and not, not a, sol- a solid trade offer. Uh, these are all rumors of, of conversations that have happened. Uh, and, you know, maybe they're more substantiated rumors, but they're, they're definitely uh, things that have been found out by only in some of these in- inside guys. Um, but, you know, that also could be a measure of, of value, you know, like saying that there's a potential trade with, with Sheffield for Goldsmith. Well, then there's an associated value now also on Sheffield saying that, okay, well, he's being considered for Goldschmidt. So where else can we go? Because that's a that's pretty much a, one of the top position guys that you could be going out and trading for at this point. So he's got a, a significant value. So and, and you know a lot of that I think I think part of a lot of GMs do do that. They they build up trade value for a certain guy by floating them out in, in areas uh, different trades for certain guys to um, you know have that correlated value with uh, with another GM. Just get get the names in the same headline exactly. or the same tweet, yeah. and then you can maybe. Uh... Get him get boost his value that way. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's not a I, bad theory. I absolutely think that that's a that's a, a tactic that a lot of GMs do use. We've seen it before. It's similar to what the agents do by by going out there and saying, "Hey, Bryce Harper can play first base as well." Right. You know, they're just trying to get their guys into as many conversations as possible. And if they're they're doing that, and effectively other people are questioning, well, hey, they may get him for first base. So uh, now we have to compete with the Yankees. So we, we we really need to be more aggressive with this. And and you know who knows, maybe the Mariners like oh well they're they're potentially getting a goldsmith for sheffield so we need to either pull the trigger or or you know risk the fact that sheffield will be gone and then what do we do we're going to get a prospect that we're not as high on from some other team for for paxton and then you know our our position is now weaker so it's all a game and and i love it i think it's a a beautiful chess match so who is paxton the pitcher uh we I, i looked at some of his his Pitch mix and stat cast numbers. So last year he threw the fastball 56% of the time. It averaged 96 miles an hour. Sinker, 8% of the time, 95 miles an hour. Cutter, this was an interesting pitch for him. I think it was the difference maker. 14% of the time, averaged 89 miles an hour. It was really a standout pitch. 260 slugging against with a 37% whiff per swing rate on that cutter. Can help neutralize right-handed hitters. Um, and you, I think... We're starting to see maybe him evolving as a pitcher, whereas his fastball was his dominant pitch in 16 and 17. It got hit a little bit more in, in 2018. So we started to see him utilize his cutter a bit more. Still 21% on his curveball. That's been a, a consistent pitch for him as well. But I really am intrigued by this cutter, especially going up against right-handed hitters in the uh, American League that Boston has and Houston has. Yeah, and we're gonna, we have a, a, a mailbag question about left-handed pitching and if there's if there's too much of it or if there can be too much of it so we'll get to that um, but having this cutter does you know take the um, the burden I think off a lot of left-handed pitchers to to attack right-handed uh, batters because they can you know they can get in on the uh, on the hands a, a little bit easier um, I thought it was super interesting to, that he's had a change up and has relatively abandoned it last year that he's utilizing the the cutter more often um, and really the, the curveball being the only off-speed pitch at, at 81 miles per hour, whereas you see fastball, sinker, cutter, all, you know, the fastball and sinker pretty damn close to each other, 95, 96 mile an hour, and then the cutter being at, at 89, 90 miles an hour. So you're, you're seeing a, a dip on the cutter, similar arm action, and then the curveball is really the, the one big off-speed pitch. So I know you and I were talking about this before we started recording, but it'll be interesting. This is to me, this is like one of the the big storylines that I think we all have to keep an eye on is how does the, the Larry Rothschild effect, um, you know, how does it impact James Paxton? You know, cause we know Rothschild likes to throw more off-speed stuff. Uh, we've seen that throughout the years he's been here. So how does that change? Does he, does he, um, 
bring back the changeup? Is that a, a pitch that they will they will come back in, or, or does the curveball get more play? How does the fastball work off of these pitches? So that'll be one thing I think um, that I'm going to be super interested to watch. How does that go, you think, with Rothschild? Because he clearly started to change Sonny Gray to utilize more off-speed pitching pitches. Tanaka has certain starts just completely abandoned the fastball. We've bitched about that before. Yeah. How does he does does he sit down and say this is the game plan? Look at the stats here, or, or how is he approaching these pitchers, and why are they just okay with it? Really, is my question. <laughs> like, if I'm a pitcher and I'm uh, Sonny Gray, and I've done one thing my entire career and it's been pretty good. Why and then I, I, I maybe I'll try it, but if it's not working, why am I why am I going to continue to do that? And maybe Sonny Gray's not a good example because he's a mental case. But let's use James Paxton. If Larry Rothschild sits down with James Paxton and says, "Hey, listen, I know you you've gotten uh, good success on your four seam fastball and your cutter for the last three years, but I'm here to tell you that you're going to start throwing a changeup 15 percent of the time and and really rely on that curveball." If I'm James Paxton, I'm saying no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Well, if you look at what he's been doing as far as 21% for the curveball, I mean, that's that's a pretty good amount. I mean, you're, one out of five pitches is a curveball. And, and you know you have to work some of the off-speed stuff in. Uh, but the fact that he's got three hard pitches uh, makes the make, to me makes that fastball more effective. And I think Rothschild's biggest thing is, is changing, just changing speeds. And the fact that the cutter, I mean, it's... It's hard still. It's a hard cutter. It's in a 90-mile-an-hour cutter. It's not a Valdi 97-mile-an-hour cutter, but it's a, it's a cutter that's, that's still hard, and, and he can throw it um, a significant amount of time. You're still getting different action than you would the fastball, and the curveball is still 21%. So if you're going to throw the, the changeup, you know, maybe we'll see that curveball dip a little bit and, and he'll him throw a changeup, or you know, maybe he's just not comfortable throwing the changeup, and maybe that was one of the reasons they, they went away from it is that you know, he's just not as comfortable and doesn't have as much confidence in it. And and this is the mix. So I don't know. The curveball, if, if he throws the curveball more often, that'll be interesting. Uh, I think that's that's something to, to look at. But he's got a lot of mix on that on the hard stuff. If Larry Rothschild screws up James Paxton, then will he get fired? Probably not. Seems like he's untouchable. <laughs> I, I'm surprised he's still here, honestly. Uh, you and, ready to and get... We saw, we saw when Tanaka started going back to the fastball, then he started becoming the old Tanaka again. Yeah, he's a different pitcher and, again. And was commanding weird. the strike weird, zone. Weird how that works. You know, mixing pitches up and not going up there throwing, you know, a, a ton of breaking stuff. So mm-hmm. it's uh, same with, you know, uh, Chapman's in a similar boat. When, when he throws the fastball for strikes, it's just a matter of if the dude could throw it for strikes or not. But Larry Rothschild would have had Roger Clemens throwing all, all sliders and curveballs. Yeah. I mean, even though he had one of the, or Nolan Ryan, one of the best fastballs of all time. Yeah. Just, just go up there and pump 50% curveballs up there, Nolan. A well located fastball to me is still the best pitch in baseball. It, it, of course it is. Yeah. So if you, can, if you can hit your spots, that fastball should be thrown quite often. We learned that with Dylan Batances too, yeah. is that he, he could not live with just throwing his next level filthy curveball no. which it is he couldn't live with just throwing that he still needed the fastball and when he got his fastball back he turned back into one of the best relief pitchers in baseball i like it I li- and it was a mechanical change too and we saw how how more upright he was and and you know who who knows with paxton after that 2017 bout of injuries with the with the forearm strain and the pectoral strain um there could have been little tweaks that he made that that made him more confident in throwing this hard stuff for strikes and you know that you don't need to, to throw the changeup as much anymore because you're, you're fooling guys with the hard stuff now. And that's, that's a, if you could fool stuff with guys, if you could fool guys with those hard, those hard uh, pitches with those three hard pitches, that's, that's some dominant stuff. That's, that's nasty. So you ready to get next level nerdy on Paxton? Yeah. I'm I ready. had a, uh, I had our guy, Frank, help me out. I'm ready with some for the stat s- stuff. I'm ready for the nerd, the nerdy uh, sabermetric stuff. Yeah, I'm gonna, so let me let me get through this because it's it's even kind of confusing just to to wrap your head around it. So his K percentage last year was near the tops in the league, thirty two percent. That that's a good thing, right? That is a good thing. But his hard hit percentage was near the bottom in the league, forty two percent. That's a bad thing, right? I'd say that's not good. That's not good. Yeah. Those two things kind of are weird, though, aren't they? So he's striking out a ton of people, meaning he's dominating hitters but at the same time when they make contact they're dominating him his barrel percentage was tops in the league bad thing 2016 or excuse me uh, 2016 to 2017 his barrel percentage allowed was good he was not allowing a lot of hard hit um uh barrels which is 
the the best you could possibly do. Those are going to do the most damage when you barrel up a ball. But in 2018, he was near the bottom in the league on that. That all translated to 23 home runs allowed last year. I understand home runs are up across the league. 160 innings. 160 innings, 23 home runs allowed. And he was pitching most of the time in Seattle. That's a pitcher's park. It's it's interesting to see how that is because they're directly um, opposite of each other. You, you, they're it, the numbers that you talked about. The, those stats are contradictory. You wouldn't think one is with the other. Uh, so so I don't know if this is a, a case where Paxton is is going up there and he's throwing his fastball fifty six percent of the time, and then he's throwing these other hard stuff. If some guys approaches their looking fastball, and when they get it, they're hitting it hard. Um, and then, you know, other guys are, are going up there with a different approach and just not making contact uh, because they're looking for something else. You do have a lot of guys in this league who are who are guest hitters and, and go up there, you know, hunting fastballs. And if that's the case, you know, potentially that's that's one of the justifications for that, because if you're looking for a fastball and you get a fastball, especially a four seam fastball with not, with not as much movement on it, um, you know, you can barrel that ball up a lot easier than than you would a, a cutter or a, a you know sinker splitter. And that also leads me to believe that when he misses location, he gets hit. Yes, with the and, fastball. And right? Yeah, so he's Sim- got to hit. Similar to uh, to what, honestly, it's, it's very similar to what Avaldi would do. <laughs> it's, it's it's very similar in the sense that when his fastball was off, when his fastball was on, he's on, and and he's hard to hit. But if he starts missing locations at all, he gets hit. How badly do you want the Yankees to sign Avaldi? It's it's just I'm seeing comparisons here. Honestly, it's. Uh, it's it's a little infuriating. Uh, he's going to get too much money. He's going to get too much money. I wouldn't he's get way too much money, and it's I wouldn't hate it. Coming I'm not back lie, to New York, I would hate it. I, I would. I know. I kind of want that to happen so that we could have a fight about it every single time he pitches. I would. I would embrace this. I would embrace that Nathan Avaldi comes back, comes back home, and and pitches for the Yankees. I would embrace it. So if the it's Cashman talked about, they're still focusing on pitching. They want to acquire at least one more starting pitcher. No, I want pitcher. Corbin, obviously. I want Corbin. If Okay, I was going to say, if Evaldi's <laughs> that guy, would you be happy? No, no. <laughs> Even if it would make for good podcasting every week because we would just argue the entire time. Don't put Baby in the corner. I want Corbin. I don't want, I don't want Evaldi. I'm not only Evaldi. But I'm saying I think he's, I think he's now got a robo arm and he's uh, – I don't know how we're talking about Evaldi right now. But we, he's got a robo arm and I think he's growing as a pitcher – uh, and and obviously what we saw last in the postseason with him is like give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball, and he was effective. I mean that's that kind of attitude is hard to deny, honestly. Hard to deny. So the other thing that's kind of we'll have to figure out with Paxton is can he handle New York? Can yeah. the Big Maple handle the big city? Yeah, I mean because it didn't work with Sonny Gray. No, we had no clue of knowing that when we acquired Sonny Gray, we had no clue that he was going to shit himself on the mound and be a little baby when it came to the media and laugh when he got pulled from a start in the second inning because he sucked again yeah. we didn't know all that no Paxton, and we everything we hear is fu- is good stuff on paxton but we'll find out and, and you know with sunday gray coming in with a 6 era at home and then a you know what a 3-1 3-1-5 on the road just just proves that the the kid couldn't handle pitching in new york paxton doesn't strike me at all a similar in, how the, in, in how do you know that i don't know I, I don't know that i have no idea i do know that he's canadian and i feel like i don't know you know a lot of these, okay you're making you're, i'm gonna make that's I'm not gonna make supporting rush, your no i'm gonna make a judgment on canadians okay i i feel like canadians they're they have they're they're a little tougher a lot of there's a lot of hockey in the background um they they deal with the cold they're a little bit more rigid in that way they're very polite they don't like to disappoint people um, they're, they, so they do have that, like, you know, almost like a Scandinavian type build. And, and that's what we're looking at. What is he? Six, four, two thirty five. I can't, I can't see a guy coming in two six four two thirty five with a giant maple leaf tattoo on his forearm. Uh, and maybe that's why there was injury. Maybe the tattoo went bad, but the, well, it's I, on his, I think it's on his opposite forearm. I can't, see, I can't see that guy coming in and being affected. I saw him get attacked by a freaking Eagle. And the uh-huh. feet didn't move like they were in cement. Didn't phase him. He 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 like dodged he was so it. scared. He was so nervous. Nah, nah. He, he dodged it. It landed on his shoulder and he left it there. He's like, all right, now I got an eagle on my shoulder. Sonny he, Gray would he, have cried, screamed like a little bitch, high pitched, and hid behind somebody. That's what would have happened. They're they're different. 
different upbringings here. I mean, you know, Vanderbilt, Nashville, Canada. I, I, I go with the Canadian. He's uh, he's from the Pacific Northwest too, so it's not it's not like, um, like French Canadian or anything. So that's that to it's not me, East Coast Canada. It's West Coast Canada. There's there's a there's a there's some rigid in that. Like the reason why Northeasterners and New Yorkers are have a little bit more of an edge to them is because we get to deal with a lot of bullshit. You know, there's a lot of bad weather. There's there's just a you know there's there's a ton of elements to deal with. And when you're in the Pacific Northwest, especially in the Canadian side of the Pacific Northwest you are going to deal with those uh, exact same things. And you got to be tough. You got to be tough. Do you know he was originally drafted by the Blue Jays and, and chose not to sign with them, went to college? See, that's – I like that. I like that makeup. Not going not to like get a – yeah, Even though he not, was drafted by his home country, it's, he, could have been, he could have been the hero of Canada, eh? The Pacific Northwest and, and Toronto are, are pretty far away from each other. But the fact that he didn't want to do that and he still wanted to go and get an education and grow as a baseball player, I like that. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's the education angle. That's why he went to college. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to be smarter. He's a smart, uh, smart big pitcher. Cashman was talking with Francesa, and he said, he was asked this question, how much do you look into a player's makeup? And he said, we try and do as much due diligence as possible. But as, even though you talk to a million different scouts and a million different people in the know with how a player will handle X, Y, Z of the New York media – you really don't know how he's going to react until it happens. And I think that's what happened with Sonny Gray. And I'm not saying Paxson's not going to be able to do it, but it's a factor. It's a factor any time now you're, the Yankees are acquiring somebody. Look, I know he hasn't thrown one pitch for the Yankees yet, but this, and it's a different scenario because Sonny Gray got, pit, got traded in the middle of the season. Paxson obviously now with the offseason, but he's going around doing his media blitzes, talking to all the, uh, all the radio stations talking to um, you know the the beat guys and and going out there. Have we really heard anything like mm, maybe this guy and like question marks about that? Haven't really heard much. He's been able to handle himself pretty well. And I again, I know he's not being criticized yet because he hasn't thrown a pitch yet in New York. Uh, and and all that can change once criticism uh, starts raining down on you like the furies of hell. And and you can either deny it, you can accept it and move forward, or you know you can you can deny it and, and cower down like, like Sonny Gray did. Nothing that I'm seeing so far has given me any inclination that he, there's a similar makeup, very different makeup in my opinion. So we know they're still out for starting pitching, at least one more starting pitcher that could be Corbin. It could be Hap. It could be another trade that we're not aware of, but there's other things though, that are still lesser of an, lesser important, but still factors. And, and one of those is infield. We talked about that. They were sort of talking to the Mariners about Gene Segura. Um, Cashman also talked with Francesa said that they've thought about moving Glaber over to shortstop for the interim. They don't project him as a shortstop long-term though. So that might be an option if they don't do anything of a more major scale to bring in a shortstop, maybe re-signing um, Hechevarria. Um, we know they just acquired that guy, Tim LaCastro from the Dodgers, who is a depth utility middle infielder. I, I guess it's the best we could describe him. Middle infielder, utility guy. I mean, he plays all three outfield positions too, has some experience short second. So he's a guy that gives them options if they were, uh, you know, in, in a, he's a, he's a ref Snyder type. He could play all over the place and it yep. seems like he's hit for average in the minors. So we'll see if he's a four, a guy, but not a significant move, but a depth move and, and is added to the 40. Would you rather see them have uh, bring in like Hechevarria, have him play short for the three months DD's out, and just have Glaber focus at second, or would you rather them utilize, you know, have Neil Walker back? Maybe Neil Walker can play second base, Glaber can play uh, shortstop. What would you What would you prefer? I mean, if, of those two, uh, of, of uh, I think Neil Walker is is more important as a utility guy that can go around and play, especially with the uncertainty at first base uh, thus far. I'm I'm totally fine with them signing Hechevarria. Uh, if like I I actually really like him. I thought he was really good since he came over in my offseason plan. I had them signing him because I think it's a perfect move. You solidify the offense, or I'm sorry, the defense on the left side, especially if you have Andujar still over there. You need a guy to go over there and solidify the uh, the shortstop spot. If you have Andujar starting at third base, and if that if he's still on the team and they don't trade him, and that's what we're going with, it would be very difficult to say that hey, we're going to bring Glaber over for to short. And have an all left side Glaber Andujar knowing how many errors these guys made and, and at times how um, 
you know, how they looked defensively. I think you do need a rock, and Hechevria is that guy. Like, offensively, I think he did enough to, to be okay, uh, but you're really signing him for run prevention at that point because their offense can hit. They can hit. They will hit. They're going to score runs. You need to prevent runs. And I just think also having Glaber focus on second base for the entire season could go a long way. If Especially if they project him to be a second baseman long-term and not a shortstop. Exactly. And I think that's really interesting, the fact that they talked about that and they're saying that, hey, we're, we do project him as a second base long-term. So what does that say? That, that To me, that says that, you know, they're either going to, as long as he comes back healthy, you know, sign, re-signing Didi is certainly one of the things in their cards, or they're going to make a play for another shortstop because we have Glaber now in our, in our minds and in our plans at second base. So to me, that was something telling that, that either Didi's in the plans or there's something brewing and there's going to be another shortstop in the plans. And this might not even be something they have to decide right now. They could see how Didi's progressing this off season. And if they project him to be back in June, then that will change. If then, if he's projected to be back in later in late June or July or late July or something. Yeah. I mean, heads of Rhea for a month or two, uh, that, uh, you know, two months, let's say, is is something they could absolutely get away. I mean, I think personally they could get away with that longer. Get away for three months. Yeah, I think. because I think he's not it's not like he's a he actually was better offensively than I expected. Uh, not to he'd say be that adequate. You stick him in the nine hole. He's, and adequate. He's, he's adequate. Exactly. And you have enough depth where, you know, like a guy like Torres could be uh, partially he could be in that utility role as well. And he could go over and play some short and add a little bit more of a consistent bat. Uh, to to the lineup. So there's things that I think they could do still. I still think that they have some guys that they can rely on that are currently in their organization to go out and play shortstop. You know, who knows? It, does Tyler Wade actually come around and, and play? I mean, they want him to. If he's still on the team, if that's not a trade piece down the, down the road in the offseason, he's another guy that can go out there and certainly play defense at a high level. I mean, they had him ranked as one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, you know, defensive shortstops in the organization. So... He's uh, he's certainly a guy that, that people, I think, forget about that could go in there and play. You see Gary Sanchez went over Toe's house for Thanksgiving? I did, I, and I saw Toe's hair is crazy, man. <laughs> it looks like Pauly D's blowout. Yeah, and he's got like the little, uh, I don't know if that's like, you know, I have uh, I have my beard grown out, right? And in one little area, I have like, a, a, it's the um, the pigment on my face is like, I didn't realize it, but it's, you can't see it, but when the hair grows, it's like white hair. It's not gray hair. It's just like white hair. So like the, yeah. there's the loss of pigmentation. And I'm wondering if mm-hmm. that's like what Toe has in the front or if he's actually bleaching that one little spot. It's interesting. <laughs> that that's a, that <laughs> yeah. says a lot about Toe if he's bleaching that spot. I think it's a loss why of would pigment. He be, why would he be bleaching it? Well, what would the benefit of that be? He thinks it looks awesome. <laughs> but, you know, maybe he thinks it looks awesome. Maybe his wife thinks it looks awesome. Maybe his I wife loves that. that little bleach spot in his hair. So Gary Sanchez was wearing like a Nike gym shirt yeah. over there. Like you think he could have put on a little bit something nicer when he's invited over somebody's house for Thanksgiving. Gary's trying to be comfortable, man. He's trying to be comfortable. Hey, man. I'm all for comfort. I, I don't get dressed up on Thanksgiving, but I don't wear gym shirts over my aunt's house. But does that maybe that shows the, the level of comfort he is with with Toe? I mean, Toe's a significant clubhouse guy. Maybe that's that's just where they are. Toe says, wear what you want. Come over. I want you to be yourself. I want you to be comfortable, relaxed. I don't want you to be, uh, you know, restrained in any way by adding a a collar onto your shirt. So much we're gonna eat, and he looked healthy too. Looked like yeah, he was he's, eating a little he's, bit. He skipped the stuffing probably. Maybe the second helping of stuffing he skipped. Who? Gary? Yeah, I don't know. I meant healthy the other way. <laughs> oh, I meant that 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 neck was looking nice and healthy, nice and thick. <laughs> <laughs> some people's uh, all the food goes to their gut or their ass. It just goes to Gary Sanchez's neck. Yeah, some people go to their face and they're like jowls, and that's where yep. they, they they get it up top. That's a it's a thing. Look, I'm I'm still a little concerned with the injury for Gary Sanchez, not because of his physical uh, ability, but for the fact that he's not doing any not uh, not not at the peak level to practice. That that is a serious concern for me. Uh, do we know that yet, though? No, no, it's just my speculation. I'll say it, he looks fat. He looks fat. He's always looked fat. Well, he looks fatter. Well, he he dropped like forty pounds in two weeks. Okay, even when okay when that report came out that he dropped all the all that weight while he was on the disabled list, could you really tell a difference? Oh yeah, he looked fast. He looked like he was spry. He looked like he was. Uh, his, he looked the his, same. His neck looked thinner. <laughs> he looked 
absolutely the same. Look, it's uh, probably a, you know, he probably weighed himself after drinking a shit ton of water for a week and then just not eating anything and pissing for a solid 24 hours and all the water, water weight was gone and he, and he went down in weight. There's otherwise right. you don't when, lose that weight healthy. Shit ton of water weight. He had all his catcher's gear on yeah. and then he, he stripped down naked and weighed himself and it, it somehow averaged 40 pounds. He was holding the sledgehammer that he pounds. was uh, taking batting practice with. <laughs> right, right. He was holding a 35 pound weight. <laughs> Uh, quickly on the Hall of Fame stuff before we get into a couple mailbag questions. Uh, Mariano and Pettit will be on the ballot for the first time this year. Uh, people are saying that Mariano should be the first unanimous Hall of Famer. He won't be. Right. Um, and don't get angry when he's not. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, it's just, I don't really care. Honestly, I don't get wor- I don't get any, uh, nothing happens to me when there's not a unanimous. Like that to me is like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Because uh, it's always the one contrarian who say, will say Mariano was a one-inning pitcher his whole career. Yeah, That's not worthy of the Hall of Fame. Or there'll be the one asshole asshole who says Derek Jeter was whatever forever. He was bad defensively and wouldn't move away from shortstop. So and thus he is not a, a Hall of Famer. I mean, Ken Griffey Jr. didn't get unanimous. Cal Ripken Jr. didn't uh, get unanimous. All of these legendary baseball players didn't get unanimously voted. Right. So I, I don't really care about that. As long as he's in, then that's that's all that matters. And I think most expect uh, Andy Pettit to not make it, uh, Mariano to make it, but but Pettit um, also with the HGH stuff, like he's, def- he's certainly not going to make it. He's not going to make it. You look no. at his postseason and numbers, though; they're off the charts. Most postseason wins of all time. Yeah. But um, and and I think he might he might have had an outside shot if he didn't have those HGH allegations or not allegations. I mean, he admitted it. Yeah. But. That'll just give the excuse for any writer who doesn't want to vote for him to say, well, he cheated. Right. There's some interesting guys on there. Um, uh, Todd Helton's a, a guy that, you know, the eye test, if you're, if you're one of those guys and you say, you know, was he one of the most dominant hitters in the era? I say yes. I think he was one of the most dominant hitters. I don't have his numbers in front of me, um, but he feels like one of those guys. Uh, and then Musina, who gained a lot, of, you know, gained some some traction last year in the percentages, is also going to be close. And, and I think a lot of people argue if he is uh, a Hall of Famer, if he's not, but he's definitely on the fringe. Um, uh, but he's 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 another guy who's who potentially could get that extra boot, you know, that extra boost and get into this year. That'd be awesome. I think Musina is, uh, you know, with some of the guys that have gotten in recently, I think Musina's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I think when you look at. So the thing with Messina, though, remember we, we, we had a mailbag question about him probably this time last year. When you really look at what he did through the steroid era, pitching in the American League East his entire career, when you put that into perspective, it's impressive. Well, yeah, and also the, the win totals are not as important anymore, and I think that was one of the big knocks on him. Um, you know, the, the, they have all these clubs for hundreds of wins, and they're, that's, just a, that's just really not as much of a – a priority for the writers, I don't think. So I think when you're looking at Messina and, and you have to consider the way he played, I think a lot of actual, uh, the the pitchers are probably get knocked on this big time and, and it's not talked about or it's not um, recognized as much because they did pitch through the steroid era. And, you know, where's the love on the other side for these guys that went out there and had such success during an era where these guys were all juiced up and everybody was hitting the ball, um, you know, in a historical level. So a guy like, uh, a guy like Lucina, if he played in another era, you'd think that his numbers would be significantly different, possibly. So um, it's an interesting conversation, but I think he's right there uh, and, and certainly should be in. I still feel bad for him coming in in 01 and going through 08, just, just missing both ends of the World Series. Yeah. Yeah, that's a bummer, but he was a good pitcher for a long time. All right, guys, before we get to mailbag questions, just uh, take a minute, rate and review the podcast. We've gotten some more ratings and reviews over the last few weeks, and they're awesome. That means you guys are hearing what we're saying, and we're saying that it helps out the show a lot when you guys take the second to give us the review because it means more people see the show on iTunes, more people are likely to listen to it. We can do more shows, um, all that good stuff. Um, Also, submit mailbag questions, bronxpinstripes.com slash podcast is where you can do that. Or you can post in the Facebook group and reply on Twitter. Uh, we have Tyler posting those out a couple times a week. And the voicemail line, 646-480-0342. We got a few on the Paxton trade. Looking forward to hearing those in uh, after the mailbags. But first up, Zach Gould asks, After the Paxton trade, do the Yankees, A, have what it takes to trade for Kluber, and B, that they should still pursue that? That is who they should have tried for first because they need an ace. And I'm not 
Sure, Severino or Paxton is that guy. Anyone but Andujar should be available in a possible trade, in my opinion. So I found it very interesting that Zach is saying Andujar is the untouchable guy when I think he would be the most likely piece on the Major League roster to be traded. Well, yeah, maybe he's talking about, you know, going dipping down into the minor leagues and not trading any major league assets, and that's the reason why. But, yeah, I mean, you're looking at value, and Andujar is probably at the top of his value at this point with uh, with the offensive season that he had. So certainly if they're going to go after a guy like Kluber, I think Andujar is going to be in the in the conversation, probably going to be the request. Um, I don't know if Floreal alone is enough for that, and I don't know if the Yankees are going to go and just completely drain their, their system for um, another guy like Kluber. I think they do have enough to make a deal if they were to go – um, and, and they were okay with giving up some of these pieces. But, you know, if you're trading Andujar, well, you better have another plan. And, and to me, if they are trading Andujar, then that's that's a significant tell that, that you know, they are possibly in on Machado or um, another significant bat. Because now you're losing, if you were to trade Andujar, you're losing, uh, you know, one of the most consistent bats in that lineup. So, because uh, that's what he's proved to be. And the second half of the season, Andujar was was definitely one of the more consistent bats uh, on the in the Yankees lineup. So, uh, it would be a significant piece to get to get rid of him. Floreal, uh, still, you know, coming off an injury, was in uh, uh, was in Tampa last year, but again, now their number one prospect and uh, a center field spot. That down the road, if they don't sign Hicks, you know, they're going to be looking for a center fielder. Uh, do you think a Kluber type is needed, or if they add a guy Hap or Corbin, that's sufficient for what they've done this offseason for the rotation? I still want two more guys. I really do. I, I want two more guys. I think Kluber would be amazing. Uh, I think Kluber is uh, is is the type of guy that you you mix in with these other uh, with the other guys that we have currently is just just a great fit. Um, brings a lot more stability. Obviously, top level talent, and and, and can make this uh, this team that much better. So yeah, I, I think going after a guy like Kluber right now. It's just now that now that they got Paxton, I, I think that they can get away with going like if they're to sign um, Corbin. Um, and then, you know, go for potentially resign Hap. Uh, I do like adding those two pieces and keeping Andujar rather than giving up Andujar and signing Kluber. So if that makes sense, I, I like the the uh, the second round of keeping Andujar and then going out of free agency because I still think there's guys in free agency that can effectively help this team very much so. Um, but if you're talking about bringing in Hap and Corbin and you get Paxton, Tanaka, Severino, that's five. You get CC for your sixth starter, so that's how you go into the season. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm still in denial that CC's on this team as a as a as a positioned guy in this rotation. I, I just I think that I don't think he's going to change their minds if they're able to get a guy. I, I think that I think they will go in and uh, and make adjustments. I don't know. I, I just feel like he's going to go deep in starting pitching, and if they have six starting pitchers, then they'll they'll deal with it. Whether it's CC is pitching from the bullpen. Uh, for the first time in his career, uh, or if he's just taking a, you know, you you mentioned uh, having that sixth starter and, and p- potentially going as a six-man rotation at some point during the season. I, I don't think that's going to happen, um, but I don't think CC's going to stop them from signing anybody if they if they think they can do it. Yeah, that, that's I guess that's a good way to look at it. It's sort of like Cashman will just say, we'll figure it out when the time comes. Yeah, yeah. Because something always happens, right? It always happens. Something always happens with injuries or poor performance or something random you can't even foresee where you're going to need the extra 6th, 7th, 8th starter. Well, and look now. I mean, we're looking into the minor leagues now. There's no more Justice Sheffield. There's no more top prospect that's going to come up uh, and, and potentially save it. But Well, well if you're looking at their, their pipeline, Loisica is their second-ranked prospect right now, and he had a handful of starts last year. So Loisica is, is definitely... Um, a, a guy that they could potentially go back. I mean, we're going to see him get a lot of time in AAA, I think, this year and really try to develop himself in AAA. Uh, that's something that he hadn't done. You know, he was taken directly from AA. So we're, we have some, some guys that have, so, uh, that have major league experience. But again, it's, it's not the... Um, Loisica and Sheffield are, are different types of prospects. Whether he's, even though he's the number two prospect, he's not at the same level of, of prospect as, as Sheffield. So... Uh, they're still high in him, obviously, but I can still see them moving him on, you know, for, from this as well. But they're, the depth now is, is, is taking a hit. So that's why I think that they could potentially still go and get two more guys. Yeah. 
The last question from Frank Golden. I hear some people after the Paxton trade saying, quote, too many lefties in the rotation when also talking about signing either Corbin or Hap. My question is, what is the reason that you can have too many lefties? What are the league splits on this? So I looked it up. Interesting. They're practically identical. So uh, the league against right-handed starters, 129,000 plate appearances, 248, 319, 410 slash line. Against lefties, significantly less time, 56,000 plate appearances, but almost identical splits, 247, 316, 407. Yeah, so to me, it's you're neutralizing left-handed bats uh, at Yankee Stadium is, is important. That's the big thing. Significant. Yep. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. Um, I don't think you can have too many. I, I don't think it's a problem. I mean, you could say the same thing about too many right-handers. I mean, usually you look around for um, you look around in the rotations. You know, there there aren't very many uh, left-handed heavy rotations, but that's because there aren't very many good left-handed starters. There's a lot more right-handed starters that are that are effective. I think too. Ten um, percent of the world is left-handed. There you go. So, <laughs> so just naturally, about and baseball's higher. I'm sure than ten percent. But you're looking at, you know, I think the, the significant thing that people could look at is Boston with their right-handed heavy, uh, their right-handed heavy lineup. That that could be a an argument against having as many left-handed pitchers. But, you know, something that we talked about with Paxton, having that cutter to neutralize the right-handed bats is a significant piece for him. So um, there are lefties out there that can play, that play still very well against right-handed bats. And it's not really much of an issue. Yeah, and the Red Sox were, they are right handed. JD Martinez, Mookie Betts, uh, Xander Bogarts, the list goes on with their right handed power. But funny thing is, like, they actually perform better against righties. Let me look at Hap's regular season against them. CC had success in the regular season against them. So there were lefties that were able to attack that right handed lineup. Yeah. And, and that's, that's important. I mean, you know, these guys, when you have a, a, a good hitter, a lot of the times, especially with the, the, the types of bats that the Red Sox have at the top of that lineup, like these guys, it really doesn't matter. Everyday players, it doesn't matter as much, you know, who's throwing it against them. Like that, that team especially puts bat to ball no matter who's on the, who's on the mound. So I'm not going to tailor. I think that we got into the narrative about Jay Happ and, and the reason they got him was because his numbers were so good against the Red Sox. And then, then we saw what happened when he faced him in the playoffs. Not so much. So, um, I think people could get in trouble by by really just you know taking that into consideration too much and relying on that too much because I don't think it's as big of a deal. I think it's a little overblown. No, you got to go for the talent. You got to go for what will help your team, whether it's right-handed or left-handed. Yeah. So I think it certainly plays more in a in a batting order. Although we just see that the splits are about the same, so why should it matter? But some people were saying last year the Yankees were too right-handed power heavy. Um, and when you're talking about Yankee Stadium favors left-handed hitters, that might that might be more of a factor for a team like the Yankees than with the Red Sox favors right-handed hitting power at Fenway Park. Right, but we've also know we know why and the type of right-handed bats that the Yankees have on this roster. A lot of them, when you're talking about power bats like Judge um, and and Gary Sanchez you know, they can spray the ball. So Judge obviously goes to right field. Stanton started to go to right field quite often. So we're seeing big right-handed bats that can go the opposite way. And that does take that out of consideration. It's not as important when they can it's hit the, the ball. It's the type right of field. hitter. It's the type of hitter yeah. that you have to look at more where Stanton, Judge, Sanchez, a lot of those, a lot of the Yankees' best hitters were also prolific strikeout people. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's a... Uh, I don't think it's as much of a consideration when they're when they're talking about it. And and something before to backtrack for a second, um, I, I failed to mention Domingo Herman talking about depth as well. He's obviously another guy that they have. Uh, I think that they they see as a potential guy that could come in there, whether it's you know a spot start or a guy that could come up and and pitch significant time if there were an injury or something like that. But there is more depth uh, with with Herman too, who we saw as one of the guys that has the big strikeout. Uh, swing and miss numbers, you know, and, and hopefully uh, they got to believe that he's going to, you know, maybe take another step moving forward and, and be uh, the guy that they think he could be. So there is still that depth there, even with Sheffield being gone. Definitely. I didn't say Sessa right. either for a reason. <laughs> Why is that? What's that reason? Because he's not very good. You're, you're just sick of the, the, the Luis Sessa experiments? Yeah. I mean, I still think the guy has talent. I think that if he put it together, he's got the the type of, tools <laughs> the toolsy guy that could that could have success he's just taking a really long time to figure it out i'm just tired yeah I'm, I'm with you i'm t I'm tired of trying them because yeah. it, it just it's the same thing some guys me. just can't put it together all right that's it for us uh 
Again, guys, stay tuned for these voicemails on James Paxson. If you want to call the voicemail line, whenever something major happens, it's 646-480-0342. We will talk to you guys in a week. Believe it or not, George isn't at home. Please leave a message at the beep. I must be out before I pick up the phone. Where could I be? Believe it or not, I'm not home. Hey, cash man. Spend the fucking cash man. Paxton, now Harper, and then maybe another pitcher. I don't know, who cares? We're the Yankees. James Paxton to Justice Sheffield. Pretty much what it is. Uh, young lefty for a veteran, proven, good, cheap, power lefty, serious control, I don't mind it. Uh, he's not super impressive, but he's proven, he's proven himself at least against our competition. That's something. I want a bone grinder. Didn't get bone grinder, but uh, beast. Go get Corvette. Go get no. Go get a Harper or Machado. Fuck it. This is this is doing cash. Ah, uh, let's go. Big Maple coming to the Bronx. Big deal. Enormous because the prospect load was not that high. The implications bring down other pitching targets in the marketplace to a attainable level, not just for the Yankees, but for the rest of the league. However, this is the opportunity where Cashman filters the market down to something that is attainable for a Kluber, for a Carrasco, or perhaps another unnamed pitching target in the marketplace that you can go and get with prospects attained from a Sunny Gray trade or something you do out there in the marketplace with the existing assets that the Yankees have. This is the chance. Here's the momentum. Go get a Corbin. Go trade for one of those targets that are out there. Get a bat. Let's go. Cashman Ninja. Alright, so I'm Yankees Dynasty 27 on Twitter. Here's my thoughts about, about Paxton. We now have three potential aces. Two in Tanaka and Paxton. And Severino has high, high potential. But he has to fix the tipping pitches. Then put CC in, in the rotation as well. And sign half or Corbin. I'd rather have half over Corbin, but that's great. Then you sign Walker or Hedgeria. Or don't and trade Gray for Jeanette. Then you sign Manny and Yankees are probably looking at an 85-1 team with things not going well. If things go well, you're looking at 100 plus and hopefully the division. So I think it's great. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Make sure you find us on iTunes and subscribe so you can get all new episodes directly onto your phone. If you do like the show, we'd love for you to take a minute and give us a five-star rating and review in iTunes. It really helps us out and allows us to create more shows. We're on Twitter at Bronx Pinstripes and the same on Facebook. You can always find us there talking Yankee baseball. Thanks again, guys, for your support. Really appreciate it. And go Yankees.